You're listening to KCBS In-Depth. Everyone is facing these huge, life-changing moments. The people, places, and issues the Bay Area is talking about. I think it really is important for folks to reach out to people so they can know that they're not alone. We don't know how long all this is going to go on for. And from an emotional standpoint, psychologically, that's a really difficult, difficult thing to grapple with. This is KCBS In-Depth. to update you on where we are in terms of California's COVID-19 response. After months facing this pandemic, there was an uncomfortable feeling of deja vu as Governor Newsom delivered this COVID update this past Monday, announcing the state would be returning to more restrictive lockdown measures. But doing so, utilizing what commonly referred to as a dimmer switch, not an on and off switch. That dimmer switch this time shutting off the lights for high-risk settings like hair salons, gyms, and movie theaters in most counties, as well as bars and indoor dining in every county. All this a bracing reminder. This virus is not going away anytime soon. I'm Keith Menconi. This is KCBS In-Depth. And today in the program, after a promising start to California's fight against COVID-19, how do we find ourselves here in mid-July, now sliding back? We're going to trace the course of California's pandemic response and discuss the role that politics has played along the way. Then in the second half, well, if we are going to be here a while, how can we learn to live our lives in the face of pandemic risk? Take a more nuanced approach to risk, accept that we can't eliminate risk, and, and try to figure out how we can do this in a sustainable way. All that and more coming up on KCBS In-Depth. First up on the program, the politics of pandemic. For some insight into how Sacramento's response has unfolded, we're going to welcome on our first guest for the program. That would be Jeremy White, who covers California politics for Politico and also co-writes the California Playbook. Jeremy White, welcome to KCBS In-Depth. Good to be here. So a lot has happened since March, but if you could maybe just refresh our memories, what is the basic outline of California's pandemic response? How has it shaped up and how has it been changing in uh, the last month or so? In the early going, California really set a national precedent for its aggressiveness um, when Governor Gavin Newsom ordered every resident in the state to stay at home back in March. It was the first state to issue that type of statewide lockdown. and. In the early going, it was fairly successful. The governor faced a good amount of pushback at the time for the toll it would take on the economy, but California did manage to avert that sort of catastrophic uh, wave of cases that we saw in places like New York. Um, As the weeks and months unfolded, though, there was sort of mounting pressure on the governor, particularly from local officials, to start opening stuff up as it became clear that certain parts of the state we're doing relatively well. Again, we're not seeing uh, those dire scenarios in their emergency rooms. And so initially uh, the state released some benchmarks, which if counties could certify that they had, for example, enough hospital capacity and, and few enough cases, those counties could then begin to reopen some businesses. Over time, the list of sectors that counties could open if they wanted to expanded as did the state's leniency for allowing counties to go ahead so that by um, a couple months after the shutdown, 
essentially the whole state was cleared to reopen some businesses, which started with things like in-store retail and eventually escalated to even bars. That quickly reversed, though, because cases are now rising pretty dramatically here, as are hospitalizations, which is a even more useful benchmark for the progression of the virus. And so we have seen uh, a statewide order reclosing a lot of those businesses, including bars, and then for the majority of the state's population, also closing things like gyms, uh, barber shops that had very temporarily reopened. Right. So that was the lockdown orders that occurred on Monday. And then on Friday, the governor reasserted his authority uh, in another way. He gave a a speech on education. So this is really a pivot away from the kind of patchwork approach, the counties going their own way approach to now the uh, state government once again being pretty assertive in the pandemic response. I would say that's true. It is a bit of a mixed response in that the governor in his order on Monday, excuse me, on Friday relating to schools, um, he ordered schools closed, or I should say that schools cannot reopen, but he targeted that order to counties that are on the state's watch list, counties that have raised red flags for indicators having to do again with testing capacity, uh, the rate of increase in cases. So there is some deference to local variation in that order in that there are, um, if if the start of the school year was today, there would be 20 something counties that would be allowed to reopen in-person classrooms. But keep in mind that the 30 some schools on the red flag list as of today, that represents more than three quarters of the state's population. So this is something that's going to affect um, most students and parents and many, many teachers in California, even as it does allow some autonomy some level of uh, the state differentiating between different parts of the state. Speaking once again with Jeremy White, who covers California politics for Politico. Tell us a little bit about the public pressure that Governor Newsom and others forming this policy have been facing along the way. You know, as you said, I think the governor and other particularly uh, local health officials, the county health officers who really inform and make these decisions, they have faced it, uh, immense pressure from both sides. Uh, as the state's, uh, as Governor Newsom's lockdown order uh, yielded positive results and a lot of counties saw their caseloads remaining pretty low, there was a lot of pushback from um county supervisors, state lawmakers, people who said, look, in our counties, among the people we represent, there are few cases, but the economic toll is deep and devastating, and we need to start allowing people to reopen. And of course, as we have seen cases rise again, you have uh, seen a lot of the other side. You've seen folks saying, why did the governor allow things to move so fast? Some have gone so far as to call for a new statewide stay-at-home order, including um, one uh, assembly member, excuse me, senator in the Bay Area. So I think that, um, you know, the governor, with schools as well, there are a lot of parents who are desperate to get their kids back in school. Um, And there are a lot of teachers who are very worried about what it would mean to go back into classrooms at a time when cases are spiking. So I think throughout this process, um, 
elected officials have been kind of pulled in opposite directions at times by those competing imperatives. And there has even been some concern that these uh, competing imperatives and all this pressure have led to policy outcomes that are not really as driven by the science as uh, we might hope. Uh, Your recent reporting finding a few few instances of people with that concern. Tell us a little bit about what you found. Well, as you said, you know, uh, there is concern out there that the governor and also um, various local officials who are making the call to reopen things like bars after having been um, fairly cautious in the early going sort of were swayed perhaps by some of this intense pressure from constituents and and local elected officials to um, allow some respite and, and start reviving the economy. You know, the governor, I'm sure, would dispute that if he was here on the show. He's been very consistent that they are letting facts and science guide their decisions. He'll tell you that's why the state asserted the authority that he always said it had to um, sort of retighten some of those restrictions. But I think there are some folks out there who think particularly the governor's decision at a certain point to give counties the go-ahead, whether or not they had hit certain benchmarks, was perceived by critics as sort of conceding to the political pressure to let counties go ahead and do their own thing. Now, one of the reasons that I was hoping to speak with you on this topic is because just from the the local eye view of how this is all unfolded, there's been a, a fairly bewildering set of policy actions, and it all just has seemed very fragmentary in recent weeks. In particular, I'm a, I'm a South Bay reporter. That's my day job uh, for the most part. So in Santa Clara County in particular, the last couple of weeks have seen state agents show up at, at, at bars and restaurants and telling them that they can't be serving outdoor dining when they had been doing so at the time for three, four weeks. And then the state turned down Santa Clara County's request for a variance only uh, to see a few days later the state approve that variance. And then on the very first day where gyms and salons were allowed to reopen, uh, halfway through that workday, those gyms and salons found out, actually, in fact, uh, you're going to have to shut down once again because of uh, Monday's order from Gavin Newsom. So it's it's all been uh, very fragmentary, hard to follow, uh, very frustrating, I understand, for uh, many business owners. Has your reporting shed any light on why things have unfolded the way they have? I think that uh, the state has been trying to strike this balance between, on the one hand, um, following the science and the data, and on the other hand, um, allowing counties some autonomy. And things change so rapidly with this virus that I think the, the state, in trying to both reserve the ability to dictate counties can only go so far, but also trying to allow the counties some self-determination. It's been very confusing, I think, for local officials and, as you said, business owners, just because the status of who's on and off these lists changes by the day. And so given that it's so variable from day to day, but obviously those variations um, are critical to businesses long-term planning, it, it certainly puts business owners um, in addition to elected officials in a pretty tough spot. 
Speaking once again to Jeremy White, who covers California politics for Politico, I'm curious for your insights on where the politics statewide of all this is going. Obviously, we have seen some really ugly examples of folks threatening public health officials for, uh, you know, just that reflects the frustration that many people feel with the slow pace of reopening. And that's probably the, the most visible form of frustration that we're seeing right now. But as as we've been discussing, the flip side of that is there is a very large, uh, quieter majority, maybe not quite silent, but a quieter majority that is most concerned about reopening too quickly. And so the, the concerns about this pandemic still run very deep among Californians. Where do you expect the politics to go on all this? You know, as you noted back in uh, late May, when the state was sort of starting to emerge from its lockdown, polling showed that Californians were, um, by a pretty wide margin, more concerned about reopening too quickly rather than going too slowly. Now, I should caution that two months is a long time in politics um, and public opinion. But um, as you said, while I think we have seen these cases of sort of people vocally pushing back on uh, restrictions or the mandate that they wear masks. There are um, a lot of Californians out there who are um, alarmed by the way things are going and, and public health officials who are alarmed as well. And I think from a uh, sort of political perspective, I think even outside the poll numbers, the governor sees that the situation is is deteriorating and starting to look like it's slipping away from the state a bit and has transformed from what was uh, an early success story in which Governor Newsom was getting a lot of national plaudits for having um, acted so decisively. That's kind of um, flipping as California is now sort of a problem case. And so I think people, uh, including the governor, are probably motivated by trying to get back to the initial status in which California is a leader rather than a laggard. All right. Well, that's something that uh, hopefully we're all working towards as well. We have been speaking to Jeremy White, who covers California politics for Politico and also writes the California Playbook. Jeremy White, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. You're listening to KCBS In-Depth, our weekly deep dive into the events and trends shaping life in the Bay Area and beyond. I'm Keith Manconi. We just heard a bit about how we got here in mid-July with the COVID-19 pandemic still circulating. But since we are here, and it seems like we will be for a while longer, it's about time we learn to live the socially distanced lifestyle for the long haul. How to do it? Well, it's a tricky balance between, on the one hand, staying vigilant and avoiding risk wherever possible, and on the other, finding those things that bring us joy that can be done responsibly. Now, one concept that many argue could help us find that balance is called harm reduction. Our next guest has written extensively on the topic, and we're going to welcome her onto the program now to discuss it with us. That would be Julia Marcus. She's a professor of population medicine at Harvard Medical School's Department of Population Medicine. Julia Marcus, thanks for being on KCBS In-Depth. Thanks so much for having me. So you were writing about the need for a sustainable approach to this lockdown all the way back in May, pointing out that a feeling of fatigue is creeping in. People need a way uh, for this to work in their life in a practical sense. Here we are in mid-July, and we're just learning that we're probably going to be stuck here 
for some time more. So that point that you were making about the need for sustainability now, unfortunately, more relevant than ever. So I suppose where I want to start is tell us a little bit about this concept of harm reduction, where it comes from and why it might apply to the current pandemic we are facing right now. Sure. Harm reduction actually originated um, in the field of substance use and was developed by and for people who use drugs as a way to reduce the harms of um, drug use. And that same framework has been used in my own field of HIV prevention as a way to approach um, things like safer sex education that um, you know, don't essentially the idea is we're, we're not assuming that you can eliminate risk, either risks associated with sex, risks associated with drug use. Um, we, we understand that some people will have to take t- some risks and we do our best to reduce any potential harms associated with ro- those risks through both individual strategies of trying to give people tools to um, reduce potential harms and then also structural strategies, policies. Um, and, you know, thinking about that framework and how it might be useful um, right now for the pandemic, I think, uh, um, you know, it's not, it's not a perfect analogy, but I think it's helpful to get away from what we were doing in March and April, which was really abstinence-only messaging, um, telling people to just stay home. Um, and now thinking more about how we can um, take a more nuanced approach to risk, accept that we can't eliminate risk, and, and try to figure out how we can do this in a sustainable way. Right. And I think one of the, the key concepts that uh, I'm taking away from this is that it's really important to not just say you're a bad, bad person for not wearing the mask or you're a bad, bad person for n- not socially distancing. It's also important to take into account why it might be difficult for some people to wear a mask or to socially distance. I mean, in the case of social distancing, the obvious barrier there is we miss our friends and family. And that's that's a real challenge that should be taken into account. That's right. And, you know, other barriers are um, very much outside of people's control, like needing to go to work and not not having paid sick leave and um, things like that that could really could be addressed um, with good policy that supports people in social distancing. But yeah, I mean, I think one of the, the most important things to remember about abstinence-only messaging and policy is that it can inadvertently stigmatize anything that doesn't follow those guidelines. And we've definitely seen that playing out over the last few months with a lot of shaming going on of um, people who are engaging in higher risk activities and in some cases, fairly low risk activities. Um, You know, there's been a lot of uh, photos shared in or attached to media stories about the pandemic that that show um, people on beaches and often they're pretty well socially distanced and just uh, generally engaging in a low risk activity. But I think there's a lot of moral out- outrage about people enjoying themselves right now. So I think we were just kind of mired in this um, kind of lack of nuance um, around both risk and also the things that people need to do to um, meet their their needs, their basic human needs around social contact and, and maybe sexual contact as well. Speaking with Julia Marcus uh, with Harvard Medical School's Department of Population Medicine, could you give us any examples of better approaches or alternative approaches that folks might take to meeting their needs uh, that both take into account risk reduction, harm reduction, but also, you know, perhaps make this a little bit more sustainable for them? 
Yeah, I mean, I think what we really want to avoid right now are situations that are very high risk and could turn into super spreader situations. Um, and that might include um, any crowded indoor setting, like a house party, for example. Um, and so when we talk about, let's say, go back, look, we can go back to the beach example. Um, people have pushed back on that and said, well, you know, when people don't just go to the beach, they go on a beach vacation and then they um, stay in a house with a bunch of other people and have a big house party. So I think, you know, the messaging doesn't necessarily need to be let's close down the beaches to avoid the house parties. Maybe we can actually say, go to the beach, try to maintain social distancing on the beach. Um, but, you know, in general, being outdoors is a lower risk setting, but we really do want people to avoid those house parties. So try to get what you need in terms of social contact in that lower risk environment and avoid the higher risk situations. And instead, I think sometimes we default to, um, you know, just don't go to the beach, just stay at home. And, and I think that that approach doesn't, isn't helpful because then people aren't hearing, well, what can I do to meet my needs? Right. Well, taking the perspective of health officials for just a moment, that does raise a little bit of a tricky conundrum because, you know, you can give all the nuanced messaging in the world. People will take away from it what they're going to take away from it. And, uh, for example, I I think that there is some concern among public health circles that uh, reopening restaurants, outdoor dining may not be too risky in and of themselves. But if it's sending out the message that overall we are in a state right now where we can relax our guard, things are getting better, that could ultimately result in people leading their guard down in other respects, too. So uh, what, what, what do you make of that uh, double-edged sword there? Yes, it's it's definitely tricky. And I think there is some signaling that goes on when um, businesses reopen and people get the impression that everything is fine. And it does take some very deliberate messaging to overcome that potential for, um, you know, signaling that, that you, you can do it and you can now do whatever you want. Um, but I think that people can understand nuance. And I actually think there is um, more trust built in public health when public health officials uh, trust their own constituents to be able to understand that nuance. And when we just say, stay home, you can't handle this. It's, it's almost like that's when we get into the kind of more pater paternalistic side of public health. Um, that I think we, we know doesn't work. We know that just say no doesn't work for drugs and we know that just say no doesn't work for sex and telling people, um, you know what, you can't even have your outdoor restaurants because even though it's a fairly low risk environment to the best of our understanding right now, we think you can't handle it. I think um, in the end, it, I, I, that's gonna, we're shooting ourselves in the foot. Speaking once again to Julia Marcus, who is a professor of population medicine at Harvard Medical School's Department of Population Medicine. This is KCBS In-Depth. I'm Keith Manconi. Now, another point that you've made is that we really lack as a country at this point clear guidance in terms of what are the most important bottom line risk uh, risk mitigation steps that we should all be taking? What are the most important things? What are the secondary things? I mean, you can you, you can find plenty of stuff on the Internet, but having a manual, a, you know, the Bible of risk reduction, we're still kind of lacking that or uh, at least uh, I'm not exactly sure where to point people uh, to go to find that. Do you, do you think that has gotten better or are we still kind of lacking on that front? It has gotten better since I um since I wrote about that um, in the sense that the CDC has updated their website and provided somewhat more nuanced information for people who are um, thinking about going out in the world. 
um, uh, you know, because the CDC doesn't really have a public voice right now, um, which is an unfortunate product of the, the current political climate, um, it, those guidelines are lost on the website, were never really announced, and it's, um, you know, it's not that useful when people don't actually hear the message. Um, but that there is some information there. I think the best public health guidance we have right now from public health officials and not, you know, not just public health experts on Twitter who are important, but um, shouldn't be the sole source of information, um, comes from the New York City Health Department. Um, and they had put out early on guidance around safer sex during COVID. And then they, they also more recently put out guidance on safer socializing that I think is a great example of how to approach this from a harm reduction perspective, giving people a sense of what the safest possible thing is right now. And then what the next safest thing is and the next safest thing is. And, and in every scenario, how they can reduce um, any potential harms if they do choose to engage in that. Um, and and I, that's the kind of guidance I would love to see spreading around the country and, um, you know, get adopted by other health departments. And so what are the bottom lines? We've obviously learned an awful lot over the last couple of months about what are the riskiest behaviors and the riskiest environments to be in. What are the key bottom lines that you think that based on the science, as we understand it right now, that uh, everybody should have in their risk mitigation manual? I mean, some of the messages really have not changed that much. Um, of course, social distancing um, and washing your hands are important. Um, but I think, you know, masks have, uh, the messaging has changed on masks. And um, and now there is a pretty strong recommendation around that. Um, and, and also, I think what's important about the New York City Health Department guidelines is that they acknowledge that some people are going to go beyond just the basic, you know, stay six feet apart, wear a mask. Um, and so they say, okay, if you are going to um, have closer contact with people, try to keep it outdoors. That's going to be lower risk than indoors. Um, what we really want to avoid is, is extended contact, close contact with people in indoor settings that are less well ventilated. Um, and then they also note that if you're going to be in a situation where you decide, you know what, I really, you know, just for as an example, um, you know, I really want my kids to play with other kids and not have to be trying to find creative ways for them to keep distance from each other, which is much harder with, with little kids. Um, then think about creating a pod with another family and, um, you know, trying to uh, make sure that you have a good match with that that uh, that other family in discussing risk. Um, so you know, thinking about ways to minimize your social contacts overall, and then and when where you can't keep that that distance or you can't be outdoors, um, trying to um, choose one other household, let's say, or just a couple other friends to create a pot with. Hmm. Well, uh, real quick before I let you go, I mean, it, it, it is pretty interesting. Uh, the, I've been speaking to a lot of residents out here in California, and the polling sort of backs this up, too. Surprisingly, people are still more concerned about opening up too soon rather than uh, feeling like they need to rush to open back up all at once. So concern about this pandemic still uh, very high, although I just from my own personal experience uh, in me bumping around, around in the world, I can feel the temptation there here and there to uh, bend and break the rules, especially when I'm in a group of other people that are also bending and breaking the rules. It, it, it takes a lot of energy to stand against that at all moments and all times. So I'm just wondering if uh, there's any trick that you have in your own personal life that uh, a way that you can remind yourself to be, you know, disciplined moment to moment. Yeah, I mean, I think um, social norms are really powerful. Peer pressure is powerful. Um, and certainly open shaming is going to be really powerful. Um, in the sense that it makes us want to avoid that situation. Um, and the way that we avoid it is then, 
you know, well, maybe I, maybe I won't wear this mask because nobody else here is wearing a mask. But I, I think just trying to, to hold your ground and remember what your values are. And, and also remember that it's your business if other people are close to you and not wearing a mask and you can't move away from them. Um, they, that's putting you at risk. And so it's, I think, um, well within your right to say, Hey, could you, um, could you wear a mask while we're, while we're in this space together? Um, but I think these are tricky situations that we're all going to have to figure out how to navigate together. The tricky situations just continue. All right. Well, we have been speaking to Julia Marcus. She once again is a professor of population medicine at Harvard Medical School's Department of Population Medicine. Julia Marcus, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. And thank you all for listening. For KCBS and In-Depth, I'm Keith Manconi. Be well. We'll see you next time. You've been listening to KCBS In-Depth. Get every episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other podcast platforms. Visit kcbsradio.com for more news and interviews. We are the Bay Area's news station, KCBS.